Mountain Church. If we haven't met before, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. So glad that you're here. Uh, I want to do a little bit of setup this morning for our scripture reading. Um, we're taking kind of like a, a hard turn right into the book of Lamentations, just in time for the Christmas season, which may not make much sense to you. Um, but I do want to give you a couple of heads up uh, about the text this morning. Um, this is not your typical Christmas sermon. Um, we're all probably in kind of a celebratory mood this week on the week before Christmas. We just sung some of our favorite Christmas songs. Uh, but I am aware uh, that some of us have been through some difficult times of late. And I want to be sensitive to that and speak into that uh, or let the word speak into that and give us some you know, biblical language so we can fluently speak about uh, the hurt that we have uh, gone, that some of us have gone through. Um, and then I promise you, we will get back to Christmassy stuff in just a couple of days, okay? So we've got Advent on Tuesday, Christmas Eve on Saturday, Christmas Day on Sunday, plenty more hope-filled, I don't know, we're not going to miss out on the romance of the season, trust me, okay? But today, we do want to deal with this. So a couple of other quick things. I'm sorry, Sarah, you got like the spotlight for a long time today. <laughs> this is like the Dave and, <laughs> yes. the Dave and Sarah nut show this morning. Um, so the author of Lamentations is anonymous, um, but most historians and commentators think that it was Jeremiah, and I'm going to be working off of this assumption this morning. Uh, there are two characters in the first chapter, which is why both Sarah and I are going to be doing the scripture reading for us together this morning. Um, there's the poet and the, narr the poet slash narrator, so the narrator, and then second, the daughter of Jerusalem, as it's called. Uh, the narrator and then the daughter of Jerusalem. This daughter of Jerusalem is a personification of the city of Jerusalem. She is like personified as a grieving widow. It's like Jeremiah wants us to imagine ourselves at the funeral of a loved one. That's what's going on in Lamentations 1. You'll see her referred to as the daughter of Jerusalem, the daughter of Zion, the daughter of, um, or the daughter of Judah. You'll see all of that in there. Uh, they all refer to the same person, okay? And then to help you distinguish between the narrator and Lady Zion, uh, Sarah is going to read the part of the poet or the narrator, and I'm going to read a part, the part of the grieving widow, which I guess maybe we should have had you be the widow. <laughs> but anyway, I want to be the lady, Lady Zion. We talked about distinguishing like her in a British accent and me in Scottish, but we just decided to go with normal this morning. So um, the narrator, Lady Zion. All right, this is Lamentations 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper, because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her, her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore, she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O oh Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. 
All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high he sent fire, into my bones he made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I call to my lovers, but they deceive me. My priests and elders perish in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble, and they are glad that you have done it. You've brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many and my heart is faint. This is the word of the Lord. In the summer of 2007, I walked out of the muggy Washington, D.C. heat and into the quiet cool of the Holocaust Museum. If you've ever been there, you would... Uh, recognize this experience as there being like a holy hush about the whole place. The most memorable moment I spent in that day was in a hallway surrounded on both sides by thousands and thousands of singed and burnt shoes. Some were large shoes, some medium, and then most grievously, many of them were clearly the shoes of small children. The sheer number of lives lost, just represented in that room alone, was breathtaking. You could smell the death and the evil in the air. It's palpable. Or here's a more recent memory for me, a more personal tragedy. I was on my way home from the office on October 2nd, 2020. It was a Friday. I was thinking about something that we celebrate in our house called Sabbath dinner. It's a highlight of our week, and I was really excited. Uh, a vibration in my pocket interrupted my anticipation. Someone was calling me. It was my 14-year-old nephew. Many of you know him. It was Bash. He's actually here this week visiting with us. He could either be Tim's son or his brother. I'll let you decide. Um, but if you, apparently not many people know Tim and Allison because they've been gone for a few years, so I apologize that, for that. But anyway, my, uh, my family in town this week, glad to have them. Um, Bash had never called me before. I didn't even know he had a phone. I didn't know 14-year-olds had phones. But um, what, what was going on? And so I picked up, and in the first moments, I knew something was off. He was out of breath, out of sorts, desperate, because something had happened to Grandpa. In another hour, we'd know the grim truth that Miriam and Allison's father had fallen and hit his head and was gone in a moment just like that. Some of you have gotten eerily similar phone calls. You've gone through grief. It's breathtaking. Take the breath right out of you. Maybe some of you are experiencing a physical loss, like a loss of a, a, a friend or a family member right now, or a relational loss that's just so heavy. What is a Christian to do in moments like that? How do we make sense of human pain in light of God's providence? 
Some of us, in our more honest moments, are distrustful of God, especially in the wake of a pandemic and in a world right now that seems like it's being pulled apart at the seams everywhere. We kind of feel shameful about our suspicion or distrust of God. We don't really want to tell anybody about it because we're embarrassed by it, but we doubt. And sometimes we doubt deeply that God actually has our best interests at heart. I've been there where the angst in my soul seems to outweigh my confidence in God. It's an unpleasant reality for, for any of us to go through that. So what is a Christian to do when tragedy strikes or when grief characterizes our entire experience as humans? And how do we move forward in it? How do we keep going? How do we cope? Well, the scriptures give us the answer. We cope with tragedy through something called Lament. Lament is a God-authored, spirit-breathed coping mechanism. We need to employ it, or we're not going to make it. So for a few minutes this morning, we're going to learn God's pathway for humanity to cope with grief, because it marks all of our lives at one time or another, and at one depth or another. But before we start that, I want to let you know what we found in the wake of our tragedy in that October of 2020. We discovered that people were uncomfortable with our pain. If you've been through difficulty like that, you'll understand this. They weren't sure what to say to us. They weren't sure to look when we walked into a room. I found this to be true even of myself. In the darkest and wailingest moments of Miriam's grief, I found myself wanting the wailing to stop. I mean, really, it sounds terrible, but it made me afraid. It made me disoriented and completely flustered about what to do. There's just a lot of uncertainty around grief. And I get it. We're not all that acquainted with it in the American church. The fact that lament is unfamiliar to us as Christians is an indictment on us. First, because we haven't learned how to empathetically and adequately and biblically grieve with those around us who are grieving and hurting. Second, because our Bible is actually filled with lament. So maybe we don't know our Bibles all that well if we don't know how to lament very well. But if, if half of the Psalms are oriented toward lament, if the book of Jeremiah is chock full of lament, if, if there's a whole book called Lamentations teaching us to, how to lament, if Jesus sweat drops of blood in lament, then it does seem like we ought to be more familiar with this category as Christians. Look, no one sets out to learn how to lament. It is thrust upon us. None of us signs up for this stuff. And as a quick caveat before we move forward, I don't mean to make it sound as if someone has to die or that there has to be like an explosive tragedy for us to lament. We can lament lesser things as well. Life is filled with like a smorgasbord of suffering. Human pain wears a million different masks. Some are scarier than others. Sorrow sneaks into our lives on many back roads. Loneliness, ailing bodies, unfair bosses, job loss, infertility, financial ruin, marital conflict, mental illness, failed relationships. If pain and grief are a part of what it means to be human, then we need to learn how to handle it when it comes to us and when it strikes in the lives of those around us. Life begins with tears as babies. Life often ends with tears around a deathbed or a casket. So let's learn to lament, church. Merry Christmas, huh? There is a difference between lament and and Christian lament. As one author has said, to cry is human, to lament is Christian. Anyone can weep, but it takes deep-rooted faith to turn to God through those tears. Christian lament is the expression of a people who hold fast to God's sovereignty, but live in a world rife with tragedy. Christian lament is grieving inside the fences of our theology. It is mourning informed by truth. It's sadness in light of a Savior. So we're going to need to open our Bibles to find the boundaries 
to keep our laments in line and safe. And just a, another quick caveat before we jump in here. I feel like you need to know this up front. The, the, the tension behind the story of the book of Lamentations does not resolve by the end of the book. I wish I could say that by the end of this story, the minor key song would modulate up into a major key and give us like this anthem of victory over grief. It doesn't though. It does not modulate. The very last verse of the book, if you flip ahead, stirs up echoes of more hopelessness. But this mini-story in Lamentations that does not have a resolution fits within a mega-story that has a beautiful resolution. And we must hang on to that. Each of us has mini-stories that have a place in a mega-story, and we shouldn't forget that. When we are in seasons of grief, there is a sweet ending to our stories for all, those who are, all of those of us who are in Jesus. So if you don't know personally where your story, the story of your life, fits within God's story, within the scope of God's mega story. We'd love to talk with you about that more. Nothing better than for you to have assurance that your story fits within God's story. This is our greatest passion and joy, to share this with you. The sadness and grief of our lives is framed with the hope of the good news of King Jesus, that baby king who grew up to be a warrior, to crush sin and death. This story puts every grief and hurt you will ever experience into perspective. So just know that Lamentations ends on an unresolved chord. Circumstances did not change. Life was still really hard for the characters in this book. It's like ending a song without hearing the final chord. It just doesn't like sit right with you. You want that final resolving chord to be played. So it's going to be heavy for a few minutes here as we investigate Lamentations 1. But we should keep the arc of history in mind while we sit in this grief. There is a coming resolution. For every Christian, there is a deep mercy to be found even while living under a cloud, a dark sky of clouds. The aim of our journey through Lamentations is to help you find deep mercy in the dark clouds of your life. Deep Clouds, Dark Mercy is not a title that is original with me. It's uh, by a man whose name is Mark Rogop, uh, who wrote a book by that name. Uh, it's been very helpful to me as I have processed through the teaching of Lamentations. Uh, so let's dive into this book for a few minutes and just learn the art of lament together. Historically, Lamentations was written by a prophet named Jeremiah as he reflected on his city's destruction in 586 B.C. He wanted the many generations to follow him, that followed him, including ours, all these years later, <clears throat> excuse me, to never forget the dark lessons from this moment <clears throat> in Israel's history. Now, you have to sort of, it's going to take a second for this to get out of my throat, I apologize. <clears throat> you have to sort of back up to get a real sense for what's happening here and why this is such a grievous situation for the people in Jerusalem. The, the, the city of Jerusalem was like the crown jewel of God's people. God had promised and given Abraham the land where Jerusalem sat. Many years later, he gave David the military forces and victories necessary to secure that place, that land, and to build up the city of Jerusalem. And through the years, it had become this bustling city. It became the center of politics and especially the center of religion. The temple was there. And so God's presence was there. And after 500 years of all this history, we roll into the setting of Lamentations. In the two and a half years leading up to 586, one of Israel's rivals, Babylon, staged like a really patiently violent siege on the city. History tells us that the people were kept in the city and nearly starved to death held hostage there until eventually the city's main wall was finally breached by the Babylonian armies. And as they stormed in, the Babylonian armies, they, they tore down the walls, they destroyed the entire city. Many were killed, but those who survived became exiles. Maybe you've heard that term, terminology, the exile. And they left behind a smoldering, ruinous city. Lamentations is written in response to that tragic 
incalculable, incalculable loss for the people of Israel. But to feel this like the Jews during that time would have felt it, you have to understand what this meant to them personally. Not just that their possessions were lost, but something more deep and spiritual was lost for them. Here's one theologian's description of not just the physical loss of the life, uh, the life loss and the material loss, but like the spiritual soul-crushing loss. Here's what he says. So the Israelites lost not only a city, but their chief city, and all, only their chief city, but their capital. Jerusalem was their most defensible point. Losing Jerusalem meant losing all that outwardly represented the nation of Israel. The ruling line of David, the priests, the sacrifices in the temple, and the promised land itself were all lost. We cannot even begin to imagine how devastating this final loss was. Because losing the land meant losing God's promise. And losing God's promise meant losing their special relationship with God. Lamentations is like a grouping of five poems that capture this city's lament over the destruction of their city and the way they felt it, their destruction of their relationship with God. These five chapters are linked together, uh, and, they're, uh, and they're not linked together, though, like, like, a, like a novel might be. They are linked by theme and not by progression of story. They are, they are all individual laments and poems that can sort of stand on their own. I know we're nerding out for a few minutes here. Hang with me and we'll get into it, okay? This stuff is important, though. The structure of the book is pretty striking, too. Um, the way that it unfolds structurally, even though you can't see it in your English version that you have in your lap right now or on your phone, uh, the Hebrew alphabet is 22 letters long. Chapters 1, 2, and 4 each have 22 verses, and each chapter is an acrostic that works through each successive letter of the, uh, the Hebrew alphabet. Chapter 3, if you look closely, is actually quite a bit longer. Uh, it's exactly three times as big. It's 66 verses, and it's because it's a triple acrostic. The acrostic pattern continues, but there are three verses de uh, devoted to each letter. My man had some intentionality in the way that he wrote. So what's the point of the structure? Why is he going to the trouble to do this? I think it's intentional. It's designed to emphasize the comprehensive, comprehensiveness of Jerusalem's destruction and despair. Uh, Jeremiah wants us to understand the extensiveness and the gravity of their grief from A to Z and everything in between. So even with this high-level sort of broad brush description of the tragedy, we shouldn't lose sight of the personal nature of it. There are a million little mini-stories represented in the book of Lamentations that we'll never hear about until glory. Wives lost, children killed, homes burned, dignity lost, hopes sunk, 401ks emptied, stomachs hollow, tongues parched, futures undone for real people in real life. There's a narrative through all the people's lives represented in this story, and we each have our own story that God is writing in us and through us, whether it's uh, Jerusalem's tragic fall or the perplexing elements in your life right now that you cannot seem to make sense of. Lament is one of the tools that God has given to us to rebel against the world of grief that threatens to undo us. So let's get in here. Number one, the grief of devastating loss. The grief of devastating loss. Let's look specifically at the unspeakable grief here. Jeremiah is reflecting on what once was. Look down with me, if you will, at verse 6. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. The material beauty of the city has been lost. But even its abundant provisions were gone too. Skip down to verse 19. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. So the positions of highest authority and prestige died looking for food. It'd be like our president wandering around trying to find a scrap of food somewhere and dying in pursuit of that. He's got all that he wants whenever he wants it at any given time. But imagine if he didn't. You can imagine what happened to people that were lower on the totem pole. Departed majesty, depleted resources, people starving, beauty tarnished and smoldering. Nothing is the same. And how does Jeremiah respond to what he sees like very viscerally in front of him right there? Look at the first word of the whole book. 
This first word of the book encapsulates the theme of the whole book. In Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes, in English, where did that come from? In English, it is translated how. How. And it has two intended effects. Shock and question. Shock and question. So not how, but how. How did this happen? In the original Hebrew, how is actually the name of the book. Not Lamentations. But how could this happen is the name of the book. How could God let this happen is maybe the undertow. The book of Lamentations is meant to give you, uh, make you feel the tension between a grim present and a good past. Maybe you're feeling that today. These are the questions my family faced when grief exploded onto the scene on that October evening. How, God? Why? It is a shocking sorrow that leads Jeremiah to write this book. Look at verse 1. And look at all the past tense verbs. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. So that once glorious nation is now scattered among other nations. Verse 3. Verse 4, the once bustling city with festivals where you'd smell the smoking meats and see and hear the children laughing and see families worshiping together with harps and, and lutes, they're all gone. All of that is gone. No one comes anymore because there is no city. There's nowhere to come to. Just eerie silence, smoldering ruins. Verses 5 to 7 add insult to the injury. Central to their pain is the triumph of their enemy. Even if you just skip the next few verses into the second half of poem one, it's like this merry-go-round of grief. Look at verse 12. Is there any sorrow like my sorrow? Verse 18 echoes that, and verse 20 and verse 21. It's almost like the second half of the poem mirrors the first half. Grief is, by its very nature, repetitive, isn't it? I think even this is instructive for us as Christians Repetition is necessary for those who grieve. There is no sense in which God just expects human, humans to just get over it quickly. That's why there's repetition here. God is long-suffering and patient and knows we are dust with feet of clay. So don't be afraid of repenting, uh, repeating your laments to the Lord. He does not tire of them. I just mean to say that the Bible speaks your language. It understands humanity. It empathizes with your darkest hours. The Bible gives sacred dignity to human suffering. Did you hear that? God gives sacred dignity to your human suffering. He does not ignore it. He doesn't pretend about it. He deals with it through his word and head on. If you don't consider yourself a Christian today, I think... This is a good reason to consider the Christian faith. It's not some kind of placebo. It's not fake news. It doesn't avoid the difficult things of life. It doesn't pretend like they're not there. It addresses them head on. Let's look at the source of this loss. Number two, the grief of just judgment. The grief of just judgment. There's a complex, uh, there, there's a complex meshing of God's providence and of human responsibility here in this text. Who lit the match of these people's grief? Who lit the match? Was it the invading Babylonians? Yes, they tore the city down. They burned it down. They lit the match. Ah, but who handed them the match? Look at verse 5. The Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her many transgressions. Look at verse 12. Look and see if there's any sorrow like my sorrow, which the Lord inflicted. Verse 14, the Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. Verse 15, the Lord rejected all my mighty men. There's just really no way around this uncomfortable truth in this text. There's a very real sense in which God caused this grief, was a cause of this grief for his people. But look how the city, and remember the city widow is how it is. The, uh, uh, she's personified as a widow. Look how the city reconciles this uncomfortable truth. Look at verse 18 and see how they reconcile it. They say... She says, the Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. And this is why I say there's like this complex meshing 
of God's providence and human responsibility here. It was God's fault. And it was the people's fault. And somehow these two realities are threaded together mysteriously. Here's the point. The fountain of lament is always fed by a stream of sin. If there was no sin, there would be no lament. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Sin is the real problem. But please hear me here. We should tread carefully when we say these sorts of things. By saying, if there was no sin, there would be no lament, I don't mean to say that there is a direct line from your sin to your pain. So please don't hear that. In Lamentations, their pain is a direct consequence of their sin. It's true. They even own it there in verse 18. But if you know anything about the book of Job, in contrast, Job's life is proof that this is not always the case. His pain was not related to his sin, to his performance, but it was related to the fact that sin and brokenness is a part of our world. Imagine for a moment one of the faithful families in the city, like right before Jerusalem gets blown up by the Babylonians. Imagine a, a faithful family in the city of Jerusalem during the moments that these, these poems were written. These people, presumably, they kept their heads down during all the nonsense going around them before Babylon came in. They kept their heads down, they worshiped faithfully, they obeyed, they followed God's laws, they made all their sacrifices. Surely there was a faithful remnant of people in that city that did not contribute to the problem, but still suffered the consequences of the problem. Yet they look around, they look around, the righteous ones, and their city is smoldering. What gives? We can be affected by grief even when our sin is not involved. This is why we need to learn the discipline of lament because the grief in our lives is not always our fault. And very many times it is our fault. Our world has been under the influence and curse of sin for thousands of years now. Christian or not, you have felt the influence of sin. It is impossible to escape its reach, unfortunately. Even if you're not being directly affected by the pain from your sin right now, you are surely being affected by someone else's sin or shortcomings right now. Dig beneath the surface of your suffering and you will always find sin. Cause it in some way or another. Every death, every war, every injustice, loss, hurt, every tear is all because of sin. It has infected everything. Sadness and suffering remind us that we desperately need Jesus. We need him to fix this whole thing. We teach this lesson to our girls when they're sick. We pray like this, God, this, this sore throat was not your intent for the world. We mourn that. We beg you to make that right. But in the meantime, help our pain make us long for the day that we will be made whole and all will be made right and there won't be no more sore throats. Amen. This is a simple act of turning to God's promise, to God's promises in our pain. This is lament, turning towards God's promises in our pain. Back to the story here in Lamentations. Uh, we, have, we have to come to grips with the fact that the majority of victims uh, that experienced the suffering in 586 were victims of their own bad choices. Israel's sins were the cause of her suffering. Again, they admit that in verse 18. And this wasn't without warning. I just want you to know. It's not like God just dropped this on them without any preparation. If you're not too familiar with the book of Jeremiah, which probably, was, probably many of us, uh, even who have been Christians for a long time, may not be super familiar uh, with Jeremiah, it's the whole point of that book. Jeremiah, as God's mouthpiece, had been warning them for decades. A million gentle invitations from God. Come back, kids. Come back. You're heading to a buzzsaw. But they wouldn't. Look there in verse 21, toward the end. You have brought on the day you announced. He's been announcing this. In other words, it wasn't a surprise. God said this was coming. Like, like a parent who tells their wayward kid that they are headed for trouble. Having lived in and for the moment for decades, the community of Israel was unprepared for the wages that sin pays them. And then, bam, the consequences brought them to their knees, their faces to the ground. Lament was for the guilty who affected the sin. Lament was for the guilty people who affected the sin. And lament was also for the guiltless who were affected by the sin. Both groups. Lament is for you and it's for me. 
Lament is the song we sing while we live in a world that still suffers from the effects of sin. So lament is an uncomfortable but helpful teacher. You can tell that Israel is feeling increasing guilt and regret over their actions. And, and let me just say this real quick. Guilt, guilt is a gift. If you feel no guilt ever, beware. Especially you non-Christians. Think about this. What is the point of guilt in your life? What is its place in humanity? Where does it come from? Where does guilt and shame come from? Where does the sense that you don't measure up come from? And what do you do with those feelings? Because if you're not careful, those feelings will crush you. The Christian worldview has answers, and we would love to offer them to you. Track me down afterwards. We'll grab coffee or a meal this week. I would love to chat with you. Well, Jerusalem brings her lament and anguish directly to God. She knows that God has brought shame and humiliation on her, but he is also the one to whom she turns in this lamentation. It's an ironic dynamic, I'll admit. And in this irony of turning to God in the midst of a trial that God kind of had a hand in, in this irony is where we find a glimmer of hope. All right, number three, and finally, the glimmer of grace in lament. The glimmer of grace in lament. Look at verse nine. There's just a little bit of a glimmer of hope here. You kind of have to squint to see it, but if you squint hard enough, you can see it. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. A community who'd refused to turn to God for decades are finally desperate enough to do it. So the glimmer of grace starts by turning to God. They turn to God. Verse 9, O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. This is the first time in the book that God is directly addressed. This is new. The city can pray. They can turn to God in the midst of their pain. Listen, church, our hope is not that we're going to get away with whatever we're hiding in secret right now. That it's just going to stay under the surface and never be found out. Our only hope is that we turn from our sin to a holy God who did something about our sin. Who sent his son to suffer violently and lament grievously in our place so that we could have the hope of the end of grief. Every person in here who is in Jesus has the hope of the end of grief. The hope of knowing our mini-story has a place in the mega-story that God is telling. This is the grace of lament. It is the bridge between pain and trust. It's when we turn to God while we're still in pain. Even when the pain is caused by us, he is eager to hear from us. Look at verse 18 again. Humility and confession are dawning on the city. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. And so it's here we meet a turning point for the Israelites and then for us too, I think. You can see the desperate realization of their positioning, position deepening in verses 19 and 20. Look at verse 19. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perish in the city. The point is, they don't have religious figures to turn to. They don't have lovers to turn to. Who are they going to turn to? They're all alone. No one to comfort this grieving widow of a city. And I think this may be the, the main point of the entire first poem. There was no one to comfort them. He repeats it five times. Verse 2, she has none to comfort her. Verse 9, she has no comforter. Verse 16, a comforter is far from me. Verse 17, but there is none to comfort her. Verse 21, yet there is no one to comfort me. This is the primary function of lament, of turning to God in pain for comfort. Because lament unmasks false comforts. Lament unmasks false comforts by turning our gaze to the true comforter, to be a comfort when no one and nothing else can. Lament unmasks false comforts. I will tell you this. I felt this deep in my bones for Miriam and her family. I literally could not speak to the part of her heart that was hurting the most. I couldn't find it, and I tried really hard to navigate my way there so I could bring some source of comfort to it. I'm her husband. I know her the best, I hope. I know her the best. I love her the most. I know that. 
But at the end of the day, she had no comforter. Perhaps you've experienced the same, maybe even right now. You feel like you have no comforter. So we see the people of God finally, actually, when conditions are just terrible, turning to God. But anytime you turn to something, you turn away from something. I can't turn to the wall behind me without turning away from you. So, the next glimmer of grace, hope and grace, is that we turn from our sin. When we turn to God, hopeful expectations can be entertained again. At last, Israel turned to the real place of hope. Not the curing of a disease, not alcohol, not financial stability, not whatever comfort it is that you feel like you need in your life to get over your pain, whatever bridge that you're trotting to get back to comfort. No, true optimism rises in the moment when we turn from our pain to the Father. Ultimately, God is the only one who can fix our mess. So prayer is the only true way forward. While confession and turning from sin is one of the primary applications here this morning, I don't want to over-apply. I think having a little humility and a little bit of curiosity about our suffering would do us well. Like we mentioned already, Job was guiltless and suffered tremendously, but his suffering was nothing like the, the Israelites here. Even if your curiosity is not settled, even if you can't figure out like the source of your pain and where it came from, even if your questions are not answered, you can still fill the gap between your pain and your experience with lament. And again, this is our big idea for today. It's like a portable thing for you to take home with you and say this is like the main idea of this text. Lament is the bridge from grief, the grief of pain, to comfort in pain. Remember, when Israel was grieving, she was searching for comfort. And I think this chapter unmasks true comfort. The New Testament literally calls Jesus the comforter in 2 Corinthians 1. Lament unmasks the comforter because it is a bridge from grief to God, from sadness to Savior. This is what lament is. I'm going to give you a few bite-sized takeaways here. Lament is unfamiliar territory for most of us in here probably. So I think a little bit of repetition will help us here at the end. I hope I've given some of you tools today uh, that will help you process some of the grief that you've worked through in recent days. So what do we do when we're faced with grief? Number one, pray your struggles. This sounds so basic. And apparently saying so basic is cool too. So this, is, this sounds so basic. Isn't basic? I'm getting myself in all kinds of trouble today. I'm trying to bring a little bit of levity to a really dark moment. Isn't basic what, come on teenagers, basic? That's so basic. Mid? I don't know. This sounds so basic. But it is where we must start. Resolve to talk to God. I wonder how many believers stop speaking to God about their pain. Instead, they try to numb it in one way or another. In Lamentations, the author is reaching out to God in the middle of his pain. Don't miss this. It does take faith to come to God in pain. Don't just endure it. Don't just grin and bear it. Don't give God the silent treatment like that old song. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Ugh, what peace we often forfeit. What needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Trinity, take your pain to the Lord in prayer. Second, bring your questions. God can handle them. Maybe you didn't realize that the Bible gives you permission to vocalize your pain as a means of moving you toward trust. Why? How? These are Bible words, not bad words. And as we ask them in faith and submission, they will be a balm to us even as we suffer. These words are threaded throughout every biblical lament. Don't be scared of these words. God isn't. Lament gives voice to our hard questions and sends them in the right direction. God is not put off by you. Like we learned last week, he is zealous for you. 
He can handle your pain like he handled David's and Jeremiah's and Jesus's. Praise God that our feelings are not a surprise to Jesus. Our frailty is not a deterrent to him. He invites weary, wounded, and doubting to come. It's me. Come with me. Third, don't wait for resolution. Lament doesn't wait for a resolution. That's the whole thing about the book of Lamentations that we started, uh, the concept that we started with. The book ends on an unresolved chord. Humanly speaking, it's not all that satisfying of an ending. It's frustrating. So let's not deceive ourselves into thinking that once things get better, then we'll turn to the Lord. That's not how it works. Lament doesn't wait for a resolution. Like one author says, lament gives voice to the tough questions before the final chapter is written. And honestly, the final chapter is written. It's written in here, and we know what it is. Number four, remember, Jesus struggled too. (laughs) We have a Savior who understands our troubles. Hebrews 4, he was the one who prayed, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a comfort here, Trinity. We have an older brother who has been there, done that, lamented perfectly in our place. In his grief, he went to God. And right now, he ever lives above to intercede for us in our weakness. He willingly helps us lament toward God's comfort in our pain. Five, and finally, connect with the bigger story. I want to encourage you to rejoice without knowing how all the dots connect. Just know that they do connect, and that once you see how they connect, It will be a beautiful tribute to God's grace and power to use the pain of your life to paint a masterpiece. So as you lament, anticipate praise that has not even arrived yet. One day God will answer and restore. Revelation 21 makes this stunning promise about the end of your story and mine. It says this, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Amen. Grief may never leave your life, but you can always wrap the hope of the gospel tightly around you. The gospel won't lessen your pain probably, but it will put it in perspective. It won't always be this way. That's the hope of the gospel. Look ahead at that perfect resolution. So whatever darkness you're experiencing right now, it won't always be this way. And when we realize that God will resolve all tension in the end, we can rest even while we wait. In the gospels, we learn that the suffering, that suffering is a part of God's good plan. We learn this especially in the story of Jesus. If God could bring about good from this world's most unjust suffering in history, don't you, think about, don't you think that he could bring about good from the suffering in your life? You can know God hears the ache in your prayers even when he appears to be silent because in the silence of Jesus' grave, God was still speaking. He was saying, wait, wait for it. Trust me. I know the ending of the mega story, even though it looks like your hopes are dead and buried right now. So, let the mega story put your mini story of grief in perspective. God's like, watch this. Things turn around. I know this because I know the end. In the meantime, though, we lament. And the brokenness around us as we reach for the Father's comfort in prayer. In one of the final scenes of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, there's this amazing interaction, we'll close with this, between Pippin and Gandalf in the midst of this like super intense battle scene. They're hiding, they're plotting their next move, waiting to plunge into the battle. Pippin especially is a little uncertain, maybe because he doesn't have like all the magical powers in the world like Gandalf does. And they both feel like their entry into this battle is gonna end in their certain death. Here's how that interaction goes. Pippin says, I didn't think it would end this way. Gandalf, end? No. The journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path, one that we all must take. The gray rain curtain of this world rolls back, 
and all turns to silver glass, and then you see it. What, Gandalf? See what? White shores and beyond. A far green country under a swift sunrise. Well, that isn't so bad. No. No, it isn't. And with that, and with tears in his eyes, Pippin reaches deep within, and he scrapes all of his courage together, and he draws his sword to enter the fight. His future hope fueled his current courage to face the difficulty and the grief of the moment. Brothers and sisters, as we leave this place today, let us lament with intention and anticipation. As we lament the trials of our lives because of the gospel, we can be moved to say, like Pippin, well, this isn't so bad, is it? Not in light of the glory that's to come. Lament is the bridge from the grief of pain to comfort in pain. I hope the Lord will use this tool in your life to help you process painful moments in your life. Kate is going to come up now and pray these truths into our souls. Let's go to the throne room together. Father, we thank you so much for your sovereignty in putting the book of Lamentations in your inspired word. We're thankful for that because it shows um, or reminds us that you know our frames and that you know we live in a broken world where we daily experience life um, on the other side of Eden. We are not living in paradise. We are living where mourning and crying and grief and pain are our daily friends, companions we would rather not have. Um, so we thank you for this book because we need it. And we thank you um, that you have provided a way for us to mourn well. And we pray that you would help us to turn to you, that we would say to you, behold my affliction, instead of turning inward. Help us to turn from sin when that is what's going on. Reveal to us, unmask our comforts, false comforts. And help us and lead us in the way everlasting as we seek to strip those false comforts off and hold fast to your word and hold fast to your promises. Um, and we thank you for lament being the true bridge from the grief of pain to comfort in pain. And we just want to ask that you would help us to do the application points, that we would pray our struggles, that we would bring you our questions, and that we wouldn't fear your anger towards us for asking why. Help us not to wait for resolution, to trust in you. Help us to trust in you as we um, live in the discomfort of not having knowledge of the final chapter. We thank you, God, for Jesus, who struggled well. We thank you that he was a merciful and faithful high priest and that we can run to him and that um, you're with us, that you're with us in our pain Help us to be good lamenters. Help us to um, fill our lives and our minds with your promises and truth and guard us in that today. Amen.